Um, I'm really excited, uh, uh, and, and I mean that very sincerely. I hope you guys were blessed. Um, when I told you I was excited about this girl over here, um, I'm equally blessed and excited just to introduce to you tonight Alicia. So an incredible uh, joy to be able to, to work through uh, the book of Esther together, uh, to really dig into the word. Um, both these gals have, have poured um, hours into really um, not just not just feasting on, but, but chewing on different morsels and really allowing the Holy Spirit to take those truths um, and apply them first to their own lives and then be able to bring them in a really um, passionate way uh, to teach us tonight. So I know tonight we're in for a treat, really excited for everything that the Holy Spirit um, and the Word of God are going to uh, share with us this evening through you. So I'm um, just excited, Alicia Sealander, and then we'll look forward to um, coming back next week and we'll close up, wrap up the book of Esther. So I don't need that. Need this. I don't. Thank you. So I told my sister that I wasn't going to move from this spot because if I did, you might see my knees shaking behind here. But um, y'all are so friendly that it'll be great. <laughs> um, I really am happy that you're here um, to look at the book of Esther with me tonight. I imagine that many of you are familiar with the story of Esther, at least the Veggie Tales G-rated version of the book. Um, I hope you were able to begin to see last week as Ellie taught that there is so much more going on in the book when we understand the circumstance and the culture of the time that the book was written. I don't know about you, but I was surprised as I began to study the book of facts and details that had been left out of Veggie Tales, and understandably so. So my goal for tonight and how I envision my role is like this. Um, this is a paint-by-number that my mother-in-law is working on. Um, before she bought it, the lines and the numbers were already printed on the page. Likewise, when you guys came in tonight, you likely had some knowledge of the story of Esther. Ellie began filling in some of the colors last week for us when she taught on the first four chapters, giving us greater depth and understanding. I am now going to be teaching on the next four chapters of the book, and my hope is to fill in some more of the picture. Of course, in an hour, I cannot complete this entire picture, just as Ellie couldn't share every minutia of detail. But my hope is that when you leave tonight, you will have a greater understanding of the passage, understand its applications to your personal life, and there are many, and ultimately lead you to worship and adore our sovereign Lord even more. If you weren't here last week, I'll give a real quick high-level overview of what Ellie shared, but I would strongly encourage you to go online and listen to what she shared because it was so good. Um, in chapter one, we meet Queen Vashti and King Ahasuerus. In a drunken state, the king calls for Queen Vashti to come to appear before him and his men in a at a party. Queen Vashti refuses, and he banishes Vashti because of her disobedience. But later he regrets that decision when he misses her. So in order to ease the king's depression, his eunuchs suggest that they hold a beauty contest to find a new queen. Now, this is a, con a conquest that the king cannot lose. And it's here that we meet Mordecai, a Jew, though not living like one, and the, his cousin, whom he is raising, Esther. Esther is entered into the beauty contest, and she wins. The king finds her most pleasing and places the crown upon her head. Then we see Mordecai expose an assassination plot against the king, but he is not war awarded or rewarded for his good deeds. Instead, we see Haman, an Agagite, being promoted to power. But because Mordecai the Jew doesn't bow before Haman, who's now been promoted to second in command of all of Persia, Haman says, I want to kill the entire Jewish nation. Now, we know that there's a deep-seated hatred between the Agagites and the Jews because of what Laura shared. So it's more than just a man's pride, though a pride, the pride is a lot of what's going on. So Haman plans to get an edict from the king planning to kill all the Jews on a certain day. He plans to do this by getting the king to agree 
when he appeals to his pride, power, and pocketbook, as Ellie said. The edict is issued and gives the um, Persians 11 months to prepare for the killing of the Jews. Mordecai puts on sackcloth and tells Esther of this new edict. And after some time, Esther tells Mordecai that she will go before the king after the Jews fast in Susa for three days. She will go before the king uninvited and plead for the lives of her people. And that's where Ellie left us, with a cliffhanger. So remember what it meant to appear before the king uninvited. It meant instant death, unless the king extends the scepter to you. But do you remember how Laura and Ellie described King Ahasuerus? He was arrogant, to put it mildly. I mean, he considered himself a sort of demigod. He was rash, unpredictable, and at times illogical. This was the king that Esther was willing to go before in hopes of saving the lives of her people and herself. So let's see what happened. If you want to read along, I'm going to be starting in Esther 5, 1 and 2. It says, Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight, and the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. Let's just stop here and take a collective sigh of relief, as I'm sure Esther must have done, when the king extends the scepter to her. I also want to make a few observations about the text of what we've read so far. First, remember that Esther had just been fasting for three days before she goes to the king. You'll recall how Ellie described what happens to a person's body after they've fasted for three days. Trouble swallowing, muscle spasms, fatigue, nausea, to name a few. Contrast this with how she was presented to King Ahasuerus back in chapter 2, when then she had had a year of beautification process. But now, here is this weak, frail woman coming before the king. And yet it's interesting that she comes before the king wearing her royal robes, which leads me to my next observation. At the same time that she decides to identify with her people, which is what she's done when she decides to ask for their protection, she also is claiming her authority and power as the queen of Persia. It's again this striking contrast we see between her physical weakness with her strength as queen. Ellie touched on this some last week, how Mordecai and Esther were not living like good Jews. They were living a life of compromise. Um, in fact, Esther had been able to conceal her Jewish identity while she was living in the palace. That's how much non-Jewish she was living. So her decision to now identify with the Jews is significant. She's moved from a life of compromise to conviction. Like Esther, we need the Holy Spirit to transform our character, and we cannot do it without the work of the Holy Spirit. We can try to obey laws, but that in and of itself will not affect true change, because while we may conform to the behavior of the law, the law in and of itself is powerless to change our character. My kids give the perfect illustration for this. I have set rules for them or laws that they are to follow. For example, don't kick your brother is a rule that we have in my house. But when said little brother breaks the Legos that big sister has been working on, she very much wants to kick him. Now, while I'm watching her, she may conform to the law, follow the law, not kick him. But when I walk away, what do you think happens? The law is no longer followed because the law was powerless to transform her true heart and character. She needs the Holy Spirit to do that, not just me enforcing the rules. I do want to make a point here and say something that Ellie actually touched on last week, um, and that is that while Esther does give us some examples of how to live, like living a life of conviction instead of compromise, she is not to be our standard. Her role 
as the Jewish queen of Persia set in a specific stage of redemptive history. So while there are qualities of Esther that we may see, on, uh, see as positive on a whole, we may need to acknowledge that she should not be our standard. Esther could not have known at the time that she decided to go before the king and risk her life that she would fulfill the destiny of herself and her people. She likely knew the promises of God, specifically the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but she could not have known how God was going to fulfill those promises and whether or not she would be the agent in which God would use to save his people. I want you to fully understand Esther's decision to go before the king was not something that she would have taken lightly, even though he was her husband. So when King Ahasuerus extends the scepter to her, we see the hand of God. Ellie read this verse to you last week, and I think it so perfectly illustrates our God's power that it's worth repeating. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. God was directing even the pagan king's heart, and he extends the scepter. There's a beautiful picture here that I have to mention. As Esther approached the throne room on behalf of her people, how much more wonderful is it when we consider one who has approached the throne room on behalf of all mankind? Jesus entered the throne room of God's presence, carrying man's sin on his back. And because of this, we can now draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive help and find mercy in time of need, as Hebrews 4.16 says. But not only do we receive mercy and grace, but we can also intercede on behalf of others. Esther's example encourages us to go to God's throne and intercede on behalf of those lost souls who need to be delivered from death. It's interesting as we look throughout scripture, how many people interceded on behalf of the Jews? Moses, Elijah, Nehemiah, Ezra, Daniel, Paul, to name a few. Our prayers matter, and we can approach the throne room of grace without fear. Now for Esther, I suspect there was still some fear for her as she still had to make her petition before the king. The king must have sensed that a real crisis had arisen to bring the queen into his presence, and he assures her his generosity by promising to give her even to half the kingdom. Now, he doesn't mean this literally, but what he means is that he will be generous. I don't know why she doesn't just present her request to him at this point, but maybe one of the reasons is because of her upbringing. Mordecai being a Persian political man in the Persian culture um, would have likely been training and grooming her on how to please powerful men. And so perhaps he had planned on giving her in marriage to a man of uh, political power, which would then strengthen his position. With this training, or for whatever other reason, she doesn't present her request, but instead invites the king and Haman to a banquet. I imagine the king is pretty intrigued at this point and immediately calls for Haman to appear before the banquet. Think how Haman must have felt coming to the banquet, put on by the queen, and the only two attendants are him and the king. I'm guessing Haman's head was about the size of the Goodyear blimp at this point. What pride and privilege he must have felt as he entered the room. So as the evening wears on, the drinks are flowing, the king again asks Esther her request and again promises her up to half the kingdom. And yet, Esther doesn't tell him. Maybe it was the timing, but to me, the only logical explanation is God. Here again, we see God's fingerprints and direction of circumstances to be used to fulfill his promises. Instead of Esther asking for the safety of her people, she promises to reveal her request at a banquet the next day, if the king and Haman will accept. Of course, Haman and the king do accept and wait expectantly for the next banquet. Can you imagine Haman's walk home that evening? He had just had the privilege of having a private banquet with the king and queen. 
As I was trying to think of a good modern day example of what this might be like, I struggled to find a good comparable. If you were British, or British, as my daughter says, um, maybe it would be like the queen inviting you to Buckingham Palace for tea. Or if you're into pop or hip hop music, maybe it would be like Beyonce inviting you to her house to have dinner with her and Jay-Z. Or if like the white, the first lady inviting you to the White House to have dinner with the president would be your ideal. But you get the picture. This was a big deal for Haman. And to now get it two days in a row, boom, he's made it. So on Haman's walk home after the banquet, verses 9 and 10 say, Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him. Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Once his friends and his wife come, he boasts about the glory of his riches and the number of his sons, he had 10, and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king, as verse 11 says, but then reveals that Mordecai's existence robs him of all satisfaction. His ever helpful wife and friends have a suggestion. They say, build a gallows 50 cubits high to hang Mordecai on it. Get an order from the king in the morning, kill Mordecai, and then you'll be free to go to the queen's banquet in the evening full of joy and satisfaction. Haman thinks this is a great idea, so he has the gallows built. At this point in the narrative, things are looking pretty bleak for the Jews and especially for Mordecai. As Haman drifts off to sleep, dreaming of uh, Mordecai's death, King Ahasuerus can't sleep. So he orders the Book of Chronicles, which was a record of his reign, be read to him. It's interesting of all the entertainment that he had access to, he has a book be read to him. You see, he could have called for a concubine from the harem. He could have had court musicians play for him. He and his guards could have played a game, or he could have called for a troubadour to entertain him with a ballad. His decision to have a book read to him was certainly the hand of God. Now, not to ruin the end of the story here, but I've got to point out a literary term because I think it shows one thing that the author is trying to convey. The literary term is parapeti. Parapeti refers to a sudden turn of events in a story that reverses the intended and expected action. Okay, let me say that again. Parapeti refers to a sudden turn of events that reverses the intended and expected action a reversal of fortunes, if you will. Now, in any story, one would expect the pivot point of parapeti to fall on the scene of highest narrative tension. So when the queen approaches the king, there is high narrative tension, but that doesn't bring the plot to climax. The climax is later when Esther confronts Haman at the second banquet, which we'll get to in a moment. But in this, point, in this story, the pivot point of Peripeti is the seemingly insignificant event recorded here in 6-1 when the king has a sleepless night. The reason I point this out and the reason that it is significant is because by making the pivot point of Peripeti an insignificant event rather than the point of highest dramatic tension, it takes the focus away from human action the characters are not spotlighted as the cause of the reversal and places the focus on an unseen power that is controlling the reversal. God. <laughs> the Greek translation makes this implicit when it says, the Lord took sleep from the king that night. So for most of you who are familiar with the story of Esther, I'm sure you remember it's significant that the king has the book of Chronicles read to him because it's at that point that he learns that Mordecai was never honored for his deeds in exposing the assassination plot recorded back in chapter 2. In the culture at this time, this lack of reward is actually very surprising. You see, good works for the king would have been honored or exalted, just as treason would have been dealt with harshly, so as to make an example either way. It was a way for the king to keep his subjects loyal. Mordecai had exposed the assassination plot five years before the king's sleepless night. Why had Mordecai never been honored? 
it makes me wonder what Mordecai must have been thinking. Was he waiting expectantly for the king to honor him? Maybe he was thinking that the king was planning some grand celebration for his honor, and so he waits a few days, weeks, months, and then he thinks, surely on the one-year anniversary of my saving the king's life will I be honored, and then nothing. At some point, Mordecai probably gave up hope of ever being honored for his work, and yet because we know the story, we know that God was delaying Mordecai's recognition until the right moment. And this right moment is found here in chapter 6. Chapter 6, 6 through 9 says, um, well, let's go back. Before we get there, you have to wait a moment. Because first, after the king's sleepless night, he hears somebody in the court. And it's Haman. And so he orders Haman to come in. Now, Haman had just had the gallows built, and he was planning to ask the king to give the order to execute Mordecai. But he doesn't get the chance because the king speaks first. Now we can look at 6, 6 through 9, and it says, The king asks Haman, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? So the king, the Haman says to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done for the man whom the king desires to honor. This was an incredibly grand suggestion. Since Haman thought the honors would go to him, he doesn't suggest a promotion because he's already second in command, so he couldn't be promoted any higher. He doesn't suggest wealth or luxury because apparently he has enough. His recommendation to wear the royal robes and ride the king's horse was intended to give him more power, notoriety, and respect. In those times, people believed that to wear the, a garment previously worn by a king would impart some kind of magical powers. Now, while there's no good modern-day example of this, I mean, I don't think I'm going to be able to sing like Taylor Swift if I wear her clothes. Um, regarding riding the king's horse, the one commentator said, it would be like the president allowing one of his associates to be transported in his personal jet, Air Force One, thus elevating that a person's um, prestige and power in the public eye. The king agrees with Haman's recommendation and says, take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. And here we laugh at the irony. Poor Haman now has to parade Mordecai, the man he planned to kill, through the streets, proclaiming that the king desires to honor him. Now I really wonder what Mordecai was thinking. He was finally getting the recognition that he deserved five years previously, and he was being honored by Haman, the man he refused to honor, and an Agagite. It's great. But it makes me think, how many times have we been treated like Mordecai? or at least felt like we were treated like Mordecai. We've done some wonderful thing for someone only for it to be ignored and forgotten. This portion of the narrative reminds us that God's timing, and more than that, his providential care for us is greater than we can know. This idea, the providence of God, how he has all things in control has resonated with me perhaps stronger than any other lesson in the book of Esther. Google defines providence as two ways which I loved, the protective care of God and timely preparation for future eventualities. God uses those insignificant moments in our lives. It's those insignificant moments like the king's sleepless night that can change the course of events so that his purposes will be accomplished. 
When I was five, my parents decided to change churches, to leave the church that they'd been attending for the last several years and find a new church. They ended up at Salem Heights, and it changed the trajectory of my life. A decision that I had nothing to do with had an eternal impact on me. It was here at Salem Heights Church that I accepted Christ as my Savior. It was here that I met my best friend, who lovingly rebukes me as needed. <laughs> it was here that I met my husband, an entirely different story of God's providence. And it is here that I have the great privilege of serving women in women's growth groups. This is the providence of God at work in my life. Can you see it in yours? God's care and protection for his children seldom come by mighty miracles, but instead by the unfolding circumstances of each day. Yet his care and protection does not exclude bad things from happening. Tragic, ugly, awful, sad things do happen as part of life's circumstances, yet God is still working to fulfill his promises. As I've been working through this book and especially thinking of the providence of God, how he has all things in control, I learned that a childhood friend's husband recently committed suicide, leaving behind his three kids. Even though I hadn't spoken to her in years, I was devastated for her. She has three kids and she's my age. I could easily put myself in her shoes and I just couldn't imagine. But then as I was grieving and feeling overwhelmed for her, the Holy Spirit reminded me that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes, as Romans 8:28 says. In those circumstances that feel too big or too painful, we can trust that God is still orchestrating every detail. Knowing this doesn't lessen the pain or change the circumstances, but it gives me great comfort and security knowing that God is bigger. The book of Esther is full of pictures of God's providence. So let's continue in chapter 6. Haman finishes leading Mordecai through the streets and afterwards covers his head in humiliation as he rushes home. Once home, he tells his wife and friends, whom he had just boasted to the day before, about the day's events with Mordecai. Look at how his friends and wife respond in verse 13. They say, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now, we don't know if Mordecai's wife and excuse me, Haman's wife and friends knew that Mordecai was a Jew when they suggested that Haman build the gallows, but at this point it appears that they must have had some knowledge or at least heard of the God of the Jews as they're recommending Haman to back off. Now, in some instances, warnings may be frivolous, like a warning on a Chipotle truck that says, notice, drivers do not carry burritos. Some warnings are good, but you may question for whom they are even necessary, like this label on a vanishing ink marker which says, should not be used for signing checks or any legal documents. And some warnings are just plain perplexing, like this label on a bottle of dog medication. It says, may cause drowsiness. Use care when operating car. I don't have a dog, but I don't think dogs drive cars. But here the warning we see God giving Haman through his wife and friends is a warning that should not be ignored. Haman's humiliation in the streets and these words in his house should have sounded the alarm for Haman, but his pride wouldn't heed the warning. It made me think, does God ever warn us in our life to change direction? Absolutely. He uses his word, sermons, wise friends, circumstances, and any other thing he wants to get our attention. We just need to stop, look, listen, and obey. Unfortunately, Haman doesn't do this, and while he's still talking to his wife and friends, the king's eunuchs come to take Haman to the second banquet prepared for, by Queen Esther. In chapter 7, we see the second banquet Esther prepares for the king and Haman. 
For the third time, the king again asks Esther her petition and again promises her up to half the kingdom. In verses 3 and 4, the timing finally seems to be right, and we see her response. She says, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let me, my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Notice how she focuses her petition on the fact that her life is in danger and the king has to do something about it. She must be very delicate and careful as she presents her request because it was the king who had given Haman his full authority to send out the death edict with his full knowledge and approval. I say it was with the king's full knowledge and approval, but he didn't know and probably didn't care that the certain people group that Haman was planning on killing were Jews. And beyond that, he didn't even know that Esther was Jewish. Esther's oblique tactic of how she presents her request to the king is similar to what we see uh, Nathan use when he confronts Daniel regarding his sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 12. In both circumstances, the Lord is directing what is said, but in Esther's case, I wonder if she was even aware of it. When the king hears this, he demands to know the name of the man who has done such a thing. In English, we lose the potency of the fury in the king's voice. But in Hebrew, the king's fury is effectively communicated as his words sound like machine gun fire when pronounced aloud. Esther's reply in verse 6, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman, is also lost in English as her emotion is full, her reply is full of emotion and anger. Numbers 32:23 should have been a warning for Haman. It says, be sure your sin will find you out. But we see how Haman's anger and evil was self-deceptive. Haman had been warned, and yet ultimately he was responsible for his own demise. He reminds me of Psalms 7, 14, and 16. It says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his skull his violence descends. These verses weren't written about Haman, but they describe him so perfectly. There are several other verses throughout Scripture with the same theme, the wicked will be held accountable. In Haman's case, we just see his, his demise really comes down to an issue of pride and idolatry. The idol of power is self-destructive, and it has a corrosive quality that destroys. When we grasp for power or anything, we delude ourselves into believing that it holds the key for making us ultimately and spectacularly happy. However, it cannot be held on to, and it will ultimately destroy us. It may be easy for us to look at Haman and say, I'm not like him, because we're not conspiring and scheming to become the next mayor, governor, or president of the United States. But when we look closer, how much are we just like Haman? This was um, especially convicting for me as I began evaluating my own life for hidden idols. For some, it may be a clean house, well-behaved children, the perfect job, the right amount in the bank account, but for me, it's control. I want control over my kids, control over my household, and control over my husband would be great too. <laughs> Let me give you an example regarding my kids though. I had a friend over and her three kids were supposed to play with my three kids so we could visit like civilized adults. However, one of my children was incredibly naughty all day long. He was bothering and provoking the other kids every chance he got. At one point, he took off all of his clothes just to be a pill. <laughs> By the time my friend left, I was furious. My desire to have well-behaved children had not been meant. 
I didn't have control over him, and I let him know how angry I was with him and his behavior. A quick note for you, I tested James 1.20 here and found it to be true. James 1.20 says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I wanted my son to display the righteousness of God because certainly the righteousness of God would not throw rocks at his sister. But my anger did not produce said righteousness, in case you were wondering. Of course, it's not wrong to want well-behaved children, but I wanted well-behaved children so that I would look good, my pride, and so that I could do what I wanted to do, control. I had to apologize to my son for my bad attitude, maybe more than once, but afterwards it made me realize how wicked I can be when my idols are not satisfied. And idols will never be satisfied, as we see with Haman. When the king found out that Haman was the man who had dared to threaten the life of his queen, he storms out of the room, going to the garden to think. The king had to find a way to save face because he had been the one to sign the death edict and a way to save the life of his wife. It's interesting that in absolute monarchies where the king is looked upon as a sort of god, they have to have someone to blame for their shortcomings, like when they give the authority to kill their wife. So the king's question in verse 5 of who is he is more than just who's guilty, it's who can I blame and punish. It's also interesting because as the king has stormed out, what's left are two people whose lives hang in the balance. It's really an issue of who gets life and who does not. Both Esther and Haman's lives are at stake, and yet neither one control the outcome. For Haman, he had been the king's right-hand man, his trusted advisor, the second most powerful man in Persia, and he knew it was about to come crashing down. In a last-ditch effort, Haman throws himself on the couch of where the queen is, begging for his life. Now, this was a major break in decorum because as even in the presence of others, no man was to approach a woman of the king's harem within seven steps. It's Haman's final fatal action. Now, we don't know how long the king was out in the garden thinking or if Esther said anything to Haman as he's begging for her life. But what we do see is in verse 8, the king comes back in to see this scene of Haman falling on the couch where Queen Esther was and assumes the worst. He says, will he even assault the queen with me in the house? At this, Haman's face is covered. One other quick note on some more literary structure of the book. Not only is it a book of reversals that begins in chapter 6, it's also a book of pairs or duplications. You'll recall Haman's face was covered back uh, when he had to honor Mordecai through the streets, and now for the second time we see his face covered. Some additional pairs, there are three groups of banquets that come in pairs. Uh, there's two reports of Esther concealing her identity, two gatherings of women, two unscheduled appearances of Esther before the king. Uh, so in your own time, it might be an interesting study for you to look at what appears to be one of the author's favorite compositional techniques in the book of Esther. But for now, let's look back at the text at what happens after Haman's face is covered. A eunuch who was before the king at that time named Harbanah has an ever so helpful suggestion. He says to the king, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says, isn't it convenient Haman just had a gallows 50 cubits high built for Mordecai. You know, Mordecai, the guy you just honored for saving your life? Yeah, that wonderful guy. Well, anyways, evil Haman was planning on killing to him, but since it's not being used now, the king thinks this is a good idea and replies, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, another reversal and the king's anger subsided. Now, what is striking is the king's response, or perhaps lack of response. He has Haman hanged, and then his anger subsides. He does nothing to save her, his queen or her people, 
But he's no longer bothered, and so her petition remains unanswered. As we look into chapter 8, we're reminded that long after wicked people are gone, their evil deeds and words live on. How true is this not only in the book of Esther, but in life? Now remember, the edict that Haman had sent out with the full authority of the king could not be rescinded or changed per Persian law. So what does the king do? Well, in verses 1 and 2, we see the king give Haman's estate to Esther. So it is noted by historians that when a traitor to the throne was executed, his property reverted to the king. So culturally, it would have made sense for the king to get Haman's estate. But why does he give it to Esther? I suspect this is more than an act of generosity. For one thing, he probably felt bad about the whole agreed-to-kill-your-people thing, and this was his way of atoning for that foolish decision. Second, in that culture, whenever they would go to war against another nation and they would conquer that nation, they would take possession of the conquered nation's estates. So by the king giving Esther Haman's estate, he in a sense was saying that Queen Esther has conquered Haman. The next thing we see is Mordecai now entering the king's presence because his relationship to Esther had finally been revealed. Remember, they were cousins. Queen Esther appoints Mordecai over Haman's estate, and in yet another beautiful reversal, Mordecai is given the king's signet ring with all its power and authority in almost an identical fashion as it was given to Haman. It's ironic that Haman's plot to destroy Mordecai ultimately leads to Mordecai receiving all of Haman's power and position. But despite all this wealth and power that has now been bestowed upon Esther and Mordecai, all is not well for the Jewish nation. Haman's edict still stands and the countdown is on. Just for a frame of reference, there were about 15 million Jews living among the 100 million Persians in the Persian Empire at that time. So if I've done my math right, that's about one Jew per six Persians, which that's not good odds in a fight. So the odds are definitely against the Jewish people. We see in verse 3, Esther again approaches the king uninvited and pleads with King Ahasuerus to save the lives of her people, to put an end to the evil plot of Haman the Agagite. It's a little funny to me that despite all the king's bravado of promising her up to half the kingdom of all his wealth and power, he cannot grant her request because he cannot rescind the law that has already gone out. Now, there is another law that has gone out from someone much greater than King Ahasuerus, the edict of death. God, king of the universe, issued this edict in the Garden of Eden against all humanity because of sin. Like King Ahasuerus, God cannot rescind this edict, but he did something better. He sent a counter edict, as we'll see King Ahasuerus issue in just a moment. But God's counter edict, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is personal and significant for each one of us. God obeyed the law of sin and death when he gave his son to bear our sins and die on the cross. But then God raised him from the dead and saved us. Even though we should expect nothing but death, we have seen the ultimate parapetty. Remember that term? We have seen the ultimate sudden turn of events that reverses the intended and expected action in Jesus, where our sorrow has been turned to joy so in a group like this, there are likely those who have experienced that joy, who have received the counter-edict, who have accepted Jesus as their Savior, and those who have not. To those who have received the counter-edict, who have accepted Jesus, my question is, are you experiencing and manifesting the joy because of the life you've been given? Remember, we all deserve death. None of us are good by God's standards, and he could have justly destroyed the earth, but instead he sent Jesus. Let's not forget how significant that is. 
And to those who haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior, why not? There is a God who loves you so much and wants a relationship with you. All you have to do is believe that God sent Jesus to earth, that he lived a perfect life, that he died, was buried, and came back to life. The same God whose fingerprints we see all throughout Esther, the God who is orchestrating all these events, the great reversals and beyond, is the same God today who is at work in each one of our lives with the same amount of attention to detail. It's amazing. Our God is so great and so powerful that he can work through the ordinary events of billions of people's lives throughout time to accomplish his ancient promises and eternal purposes, just like we see him doing here in Esther. So as I said, in verse 3, we see Esther again approach the king uninvited, and in verse 4, we thankfully see the king again extend the scepter to her. She then begins her next delicate and eloquent request of the king that he issue a new order overruling Haman's order to destroy the Jews. She says in verse 6, For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So King Ahasuerus agrees to Esther's request and has Esther and Mordecai write the orders for the new edict in the name of the king. At this point, two months have passed since Haman's edict went out. So for two months, the Jews have been living in fear of that fateful day when this massacre would be permitted against them. But then in the palace, in almost identical words as when Haman issues the edict, Mordecai summons the royal scribes and issues the counter edict. Mordecai's edict granted the Jews the right to assemble and protect themselves. When we look at the harsh terms of Mordecai's counter edict to Haman, the words are an echo, a clear reversal. We may get stuck here on the brutality of the Esther story and the harsh terms that Mordecai puts in his edict, but we must remember to view it in the greater context of biblical history. I want to draw attention to one more parallel that we see between the way Haman's edict went out and then subsequently Mordecai's. So in chapter 3, 15, we see Haman's edict go out and listen to what it says. It says, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the edict was issued in Susa, the citadel. And then in 814, we see Mordecai's edict go out and it says, the couriers, hastened and impelled by the king's command, went out, riding on the royal steeds, and the edict was given out at the citadel in Susa. Do you hear the similarities? The author is intentional with these reversals and the wording of them. So after the edict goes out, Mordecai leaves the king's presence wearing royal robes and a golden crown. As we were thinking about how we would break apart and present the book of Esther these four weeks, I think Ellie got the short end of the stick. She had to be the one to deliver all the bad. Queen Vashti gets banished. Mordecai's good deeds get forgotten. Haman is promoted. Esther must produce, uh, approach an unpredictable king. And then I come in tonight and get to say, but God, and all of those seemingly bad things that she talked about in the beginning of the book are turned around for good as God is working to fulfill his promises. God's name is still not mentioned in this book, but we cannot ignore his work. I want to take a moment to say something that maybe is obvious and goes without saying, but I don't want to send the wrong message. God doesn't promise this kind of happy ending to everybody's story. Today, not all faithful Christians are promoted and given special honors. And guess what? God hasn't promised that he will make us all rich and powerful. But he has promised that he is still in control of all circumstances and that he is working even when we don't feel like it. Okay? So again, for two months, the Jews have been living in fear of Haman's edict and then this counter-edict comes out. As you can imagine, and as we see in verses 16 and 17, the Jews are ecstatic. There is, this is a time of joy and happiness and celebration as Jews everywhere receive the news. 
One final thing I want to point out at the end of this chapter before I wrap up. If we look at verse 17, it says, And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, this was one of those statements that when I read it, I didn't know what it meant. Does it mean that some Persians recognized the improbable series of events as the hand of God and therefore responded in true heartfelt conversion to the God of the Jews? Or does it mean that some Persians professed to be Jews, though not a true conversion, just out of the fear of the political and military power that had now been bestowed on Mordecai and the uh, Jewish community? As I read through the commentaries, it appeared to me that there was no right answer um, because the author doesn't elaborate on it any further. And while it's certainly not a theological position to die on, I mean, it doesn't impact our salvation, I think there's logic and argument for the answer to be both. I think there were some Jews who did respond in true heartfelt conversion of the God of the Jews. But I also think there were those who were looking to align themselves with the greatest military power. And just as we saw Mordecai doing at the beginning of the book of Esther with the Persians. Um, and so it was to their advantage to become a Jew, but not in the true meaning of the term. I bring this up and point this out, if nothing else other than because it again shows the fingerprints of God orchestrating all of the events in the book of Esther. These events, Mordecai and Esther living in Persia, Esther being selected as queen out of countless other women, Haman's edict to kill the Jews, the king's sleepless night, Mordecai's honor, they're not mere coincidences. It's not chance, an accident, or serendipity. These events are the unfolding of God's perfect plan, fulfilling his promises at exactly the right moment, using exactly the people he means to use. So if God can orchestrate this precise sequence of events thousands of years ago, do we believe that he can still unfold his perfect plan in our life using exactly the people he means to use, fulfilling it at exactly the time he intends to do so. I hope we do. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the way it impacts us and the way that we can see who you are, that we can see how you have all things under control, even when our emotions tell us differently. Lord, thank you for your love and your compassion and your grace to us, Lord. I pray these things in your name. Amen.